I'll invite you to turn your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been teaching for a number of weeks on uh, spiritual maturity, and we want to continue that. We're getting uh, close to the end of the series, and uh, so we want to cover some things just real briefly this morning that the Bible is very, very clear on that too much of the church is not. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, the Bible says, And He gave, speaking of Jesus, uh, God the Father gave as a result of Jesus' resurrection. And He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. That makes up what we know of as the ministry gift, uh, the five-fold ministry gifts as it's uh, oftentimes called. For what purpose? Verse 12, for the perfecting or the maturing. The word perfecting means to mature. For the perfecting of the saints. So God must want us to mature. He must want us to grow up in Him then, right? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come into the unity of the, of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect, or again, here's the same word, mature man. So please notice that maturity is based on knowledge. Spiritual maturity is based on knowledge and specifically knowledge of the Son of God. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we need to know that Jesus came to the earth and was born in a manger? Well, yeah, that's good to know. Does it, but what else does it mean? Does it mean that we're, uh, that we're supposed to know that Jesus came to the earth and did miracles here on the earth? That's good to know too. But if that's all we know about Jesus, that's not going to do anything for us and cause us to mature. And unfortunately, that's where most of the church has stopped right there. They may go a little bit further and say, well, we know Jesus went to the cross and he died for our sins. That's great. You've got to know that. But if you just stop there, then you don't know the things you need to know to mature and grow up spiritually. What we need to know is what Jesus accomplished by going to the cross, what He ensured by being raised from the dead, and what He is doing for us now, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Because I don't know about you, I'm totally thrilled that I got saved. But I got saved when I was six years old. I've got to live from that point forward. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to do that by finding out what belongs to us in Christ Jesus. So unto a perfect man... Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I, I don't want to take any time on this, but please notice that the Bible's definition of maturity is where you look like Jesus. You look like Jesus in what you say. You look like Jesus in what you do. You look like Jesus in how you act. That's what the Bible says a mature Christian is. Okay, I understand it's a high mark. I get that. But that's what the Bible says that maturity is, as far as God's concerned. Jesus said the same thing. He said, the works that I do shall you do also. And even greater works than these shall you do, because I go unto my Father. Jesus, you never can find any one place where Jesus said, this is something that I'm going to do and only I can do, and that's it. Except when James and John asked to sit on Jesus' right and left hand in heaven. He asked the question, are you able to drink of the cup that I drink from? They spoke up and said, Sure. Bless their darling hearts. They had no clue. And Jesus said, well, you will drink of it in a measure, but the place that you asked for is not for me to give. So in other words, Jesus is identifying there are some things I'm going to do as your substitute that you don't have to do. Thank God I don't have to go to the cross. Thank God I don't have to take the beating that Jesus took. Thank God I don't have to go to hell to pay the price for spiritual death. I'm sorry if that offends some people, but that's what the Bible says. Jesus did some things for us as a substitute. For what purpose? So that we could live the same kind of life that He lived here on the earth. That's what that means. Under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, 
by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. He's saying growing up spiritually will cause you not to be moved by doctrine or by the wrong people. Now just imagine where the church would be if those two things were in practice. Verse 15. Now here's the mark of spiritual maturity. Here's the characteristic. Here's the goal. Here's what you shoot for. Here's what you aim at. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him. In all things, which is the head, even Christ. Notice God wants you to grow up into the measure of the fullness of the stature of Jesus in every area. In all things, in other words. Now that's the, that's the characteristic. Speaking the truth in love. You're never going to find any person that's, spirit, that's spiritually mature that doesn't speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is the baseline. It's the foundation. It is the outstanding characteristic of any area, any level, any aspect of spiritual maturity. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. The church says that God teaches you through all kinds of different things. Religion will tell you that God will bring tragedy into your life to teach you. I want you to see that the Bible says, I'm not, I'm not even going to argue the point, you know, whether or not people think God does that. We all know that people have different ideas about things like that. My point simply is this. The Bible says that everything that brings you to maturity will result in speaking the truth in love. So if somebody feels like God brought cancer on them to teach them something, the end result should be speaking the truth in love. If somebody thinks that God stole their money and brought some kind of bankruptcy or some kind of terrible financial situation on them to teach them something, the end result would be speaking the truth in love. Now what is the truth? Remember that was Pilate's question to Jesus. Jesus said something about the truth and Pilate said, what's truth? In other words, you've got your truth, I've got my truth. That sounds kind of popular today, doesn't it? Jesus identifies truth in John chapter 17 when he's praying before he goes to the Father. He says, sanctify them, meaning the disciples. He specifies not only the the twelve that he had then, but all those that would believe on, on him through their word. That's you and me. Every one of us believe on Jesus through the word of the twelve apostles the original disciples, in some way or another, plus others like Paul. So, he says, I pray not only for these, the twelve that I've got, but for all those that shall believe on me through their word. He said, sanctify them through thy word, thy word is truth. Now, if the Holy Ghost inspired Paul to write Ephesians chapter 4, along with the rest of the book of Ephesians, and the Holy Ghost is talking about truth, as an aspect of spiritual maturity, is the Holy Ghost going to say something different in that Ephesians 4 about the definition of truth that Jesus said in John 17 about what truth is? Jesus is the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead too. You've got God saying truth is the Word in, in John 17. You've got God saying the truth is the Word in Ephesians chapter 4. That makes sense, doesn't it? How could God be consistent if the truth meant one thing in John 17 and means something else in Ephesians 4? It couldn't. It always has to mean the same thing. So when he says speaking the truth in love, he literally means speaking the word in love. The word of God is truth. Back to my original point. Everything that brings you any level of maturity should result in speaking the truth or speaking the word, or we might say it this way, confessing the word of God. Let me ask you a question. How many of those people say that God's brought sickness or tragedy or destruction or some awful, terrible thing on them? How many of them come out confessing the Word? 
I see a lot coming out with the questions. I don't know why God let this happen to me. But I don't see anybody coming out confessing the word. I don't see anybody coming out of, well, God brought cancer on me to teach me something. And their end result is, by Jesus' stripes, I was healed. I never see that being the end result of what people say they're being taught through tragedy or sickness or disease. Do you? Yet the Bible says that the end result of every area, aspect of growth or spiritual maturity will be confessing the word in love. Folks, you cannot emphasize the, overemphasize the importance of confessing the word. You cannot. It is absolutely impossible to overemphasize the importance of confessing the Word. Confessing the Word of God is the absolute baseline, bottom line, foundation, everything for the Christian life. It's how you got saved. You confessed the truth. Well, what is the truth? That Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You confess Him as your Lord and Savior, according to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. You confessed Him as your Lord and Savior. It says, For with the heart man believes unto righteousness. We talk a lot about the believing part. Not too much is said about the confessing part, though. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto righteousness or salvation. What's it saying? It's saying it's not yours till you say it. You didn't get saved till you said it. You didn't get saved till you prayed. And that prayer held a confession of Jesus as being your Lord and Savior in some measure or some manner. You didn't get it till you said it. Now that's what the Bible calls faith. That's what the Bible, that's why the Bible says the just shall live by faith. It didn't say the just shall just get saved by faith. We do. Ephesians 2 8, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It doesn't just say, however, that we get saved by faith. It says faith then is supposed to be a lifestyle for us. The just shall live by faith. What does that mean? The just shall live by believing in his heart and confessing with his mouth. In other words, spiritual maturity, the Christian lifestyle, is speaking the truth or confessing the word. Those are synonymous terms. It's the way we're supposed to live. And it's the only way you can grow up. Now, Paul prays for the church, the same group in Ephesus as well as other, other uh, letters that he wrote to the church. He prays for the church that we would have our eyes open to certain things. He prays in Ephesians chapter 1 that our eyes would be opened to the knowledge of, uh, of, of what God has called us to, the hope of His calling, the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of His power that works in us as a believer. We've talked a little bit, started talking about our inheritance. If you're going to know or grow in the knowledge of the Lord uh, Jesus, if you're going to grow in the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or a mature man, you're going to have to know what belongs to you. You're going to have to know what Jesus purchased for you on the cross. You're going to have to know what Jesus has provided for you now that He's raised from the dead. That's your inheritance. Now look with me over to Colossians chapter 1. We've looked at this before, but here's Paul praying the same prayer for the Colossians that he prayed for the Ephesians, just using a little different terminology. And I want you to see it. Uh, in, in this context. Part of Paul's prayer, we'll start in verse 12. He said, Giving thanks to, unto the Father which has made us meet or able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. I want you to notice that he didn't say you are automatically going to be a partaker. 
He said God made you able to be a partaker. Now he's writing to Christians. He's not writing to the world. He's not writing to the unsaved saying, now you could be a, a, a part of the family of God if you just get saved. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, now, if you'll just come into the family of God, then there's a great inheritance for you. That's not what he's saying. He's writing to Christians. And he's saying Jesus made us, the work of Jesus made us able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Whether you do partake or not is up to you. You can be saved, you can be in the family of God and have an inheritance and never partake of it. Just like I could have some rich unknown uncle, distant relative or something that left me a bunch of money. If I don't know what my inheritance is, it would never do me any good. Right? So you couldn't, I couldn't go around saying I don't have an inheritance because the fact is I would have one. Even if I said I didn't, I would have. But whether I partake of it or not has something to do with my action, not his. He did his part in leaving it for me. I've got to do my part in taking hold of it and receiving it. Same way it works with the things of God. Same exact way. So he said, God, Jesus... Through the work of Jesus, we have been made able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse, four, uh, uh, verse uh, 13, excuse me. Who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. So what does this say about our inheritance? Where is our inheritance? It's in the kingdom of God. Now, some people hear that and say, oh, okay, now I'm with you, Pastor Mike. I thought you were going to talk about things like healing and prosperity and stuff like that, you know, earthly things. But if our inheritance is the kingdom of God, okay, if it's a spiritual inheritance, okay, I'm with you on that. Man, I thought I was in one of those crazy churches. Now we're back over talking about spiritual things. You know, not real world stuff, just spiritual which so much of the church seems to focus on. But folks, I want you to understand, the Bible identifies what the kingdom of God is. Jesus told his disciples, heal the sick and say the kingdom of God's come to you. Now there's no way in the world anybody, any intelligent person, could say then that healing was not or could not be or, or, or was excluded in any way from the kingdom of God. Jesus said heal and say the kingdom of God's come. How could the kingdom of God not include healing? Jesus went further and he told the disciples, he said, or he said to, right, uh, uh, talking to the Pharisees rather, I should say, when he was talking to the Pharisees, they accused Jesus of casting out devils by the power of the devil. And Jesus said, well, if I did that, if I, then Satan would be working against himself and his kingdom would fall. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then you know that the kingdom of God has come unto you. So how could deliverance from the power of the devil not be part of the kingdom of God? Jesus said it was. Okay, so you got Jesus saying healing is part of the kingdom of God. you got Jesus saying that deliverance from the power of the devil is part of the kingdom of God. And then in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus starts talking about the birds of the air, that they don't work and God takes care of them. He talks about the grass of the field, that they don't, they don't try to, to clothe themselves, but God makes sure that they're more beautiful than anything that we've ever known. He goes on to talk about other areas of food and drink and clothing and material possessions. And he says... Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. He goes on to say, Fear not, little children, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So how could material possessions not be part of the kingdom of God when Jesus easily, clearly connects those two things? How could they not be? But now here's the, here's the thing. 
Jesus didn't say chase the things. He didn't say chase healing. He didn't say chase deliverance. He didn't say chase material possessions. He said seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So it includes it, but we're supposed to pursue the kingdom of God. How do you do that? Sounds great. We make great Bible stories and, and, and Sunday school lessons out of that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Religion teaches that in this way. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things. Well, don't worry about those. Those are ungodly. That's the impression you get. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And forget about this stuff. Because we're interested in important things. Folks, paying your rent is pretty important. Paying your bills and not going to jail because you're in debt is pretty important. Being healed when you're fighting sickness is pretty important to those that are fighting the sickness. Jesus seemed to think so. That's why he healed the sick. Now, if Jesus had come to the earth and saw the sick and said, you know, there are more important things than your healing, then we'd have a right as the church to take the same attitude. But if Jesus didn't do that, why do we think we should? Okay, so what do we do? We seek first the kingdom of God. That's where our inheritance is. How does that translate into real life? How do you seek the kingdom of God? Romans 14, verse 17. Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, Paul, by the Holy Ghost, tells us what makes up the kingdom of God that we're supposed to pursue. He says, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Now, the meat and drink has reference. He's making reference to, to meats offered unto idols, and that's what everybody argued about back then. Should we, should we not? Does it affect our faith? Does it, uh, you know, does it make God mad if we eat the wrong kind of meats? And, and we just bought it in the marketplace. We didn't sacrifice it to, die, uh, to devils or idols or anything. What do we do about this? Paul said it's not about what you eat or what you drink. It's not about the rules that other people will try to govern you by. It's not about the rules that religion will try to impose upon you. That's the very same message he tried to, to tell those in every city they went to. It's not about the law of Moses. It's not about keeping the ritual sacrifice. It's not about going back and doing the, the, even the Ten Commandments. Jesus said the Ten Commandments were fulfilled in one new commandment, and that's the law of love. So it's not about do's and don'ts. Thank God it's not. That's good news for me because I could never not do the don'ts. And so you go through life, you go through your Christian life feeling condemned. That's not the way God wants you to live. That's not what Jesus came for you to have. So he says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Well, what is it then, Paul? He says it's righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy in the Holy Ghost. Now notice the next verse. Notice verse 18. He said, for he that in these things, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, for he that in these things serves Christ is acceptable unto God and approved of men. Is this not saying the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 6.33 when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Is there any way that anybody could conclude that Paul is not saying the same thing? I don't think so. I think he's saying exactly the same thing. Okay, now the question is, not what do we pursue? We pursue righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. The question now is, how? How do you pursue that stuff? How do you pursue it? Well, folks, righteousness simply means right standing with God. Here's the eternal struggle that Christians seem to have. They go through, they get saved, they give their heart to Jesus, they love God with all of their heart, and then they still 
continue to be dominated by sin. Paul talked about his own struggle in Romans chapter 7. My body wants to do the wrong thing, but my heart, my spirit, where Jesus lives, wants to do the right thing. But man, what a struggle there is. And my body seems to be winning more than times than it ought to. My body seems to be dominating my spirit. Paul is trying to show us, here's how you enter into victory. Here's how you go from that life dominated by sin, even though you're saved, to the victorious life where he finally said, I keep my body under. I, the man on the inside, keep my body under. How'd you get there, Paul? You weren't there in Romans chapter 7. How'd you get there in 1 Corinthians 9, 27? How in the world did you get there? Very simply this. He found that the same principle that brought him into the family of God is the way that you dominate sin. How did he come into the family of God? By the words of his mouth. For confession is made unto salvation. Confession is always made unto every aspect of salvation. It doesn't mean, and here's what the church has done, the church, by and large, has said confession is all about making Jesus the Lord of your life, and after that it's just about confessing sin. And so the only thing that the church looks at outside of getting saved is that confession is the negative side. But folks, the Bible says everything about the Christian life is speaking the truth in love. In other words, the positive side of confession. He didn't say the mature Christian is always confessing his sins. He said the mature Christian is always speaking the truth in love. Well, how could a Christian be mature and not be constantly confessing his sins? Because he's learned to dominate his flesh. How? By speaking the truth in love. By speaking the truth in love. Folks, I want you to understand something about this. And as I said, you can't overemphasize this. There's no way. I know a lot of people say that we do, but it's impossible. You can't. Because you can't please God. Everything that the Bible says about confession is tied into faith. Faith is what you get saved in. Believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. That's what the Bible identifies as faith. It says two very important things about faith. It says, number one, you can't receive anything from God without it. That's why faith is necessary to get saved. And it says you can't please God without faith. So what does that mean? That means you can't receive without confessing the Word, and you can't please God without confessing the Word. How can you overemphasize that? Well, we just don't, we just can't, just don't care too much about that confession stuff in my church. Well, then that has to mean you don't care too much about that pleasing God stuff in your church. Because that's what the Bible says does it. Faith pleases God. Without faith, Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it's impossible to please God. It doesn't say it's hard. It says it's impossible. So without confessing the word, it's impossible for you to please God. Overemphasize that for me. How can you do that? You can't. And that's exactly the key to victory that Paul found. Now, folks, here's what I want you to get. Please get this. If you don't get anything else I say this morning, get this. Your confession is Satan's defeat. Why? Think about it in salvation. Your confession that Jesus is Lord was Satan's defeat. It was the defeat of spiritual death that held you bound and kept you away from God and kept you out of eternal life. Your confession was not only your victory in eternal life, but it was Satan's defeat where death, sin and death were concerned. And there was nothing he could do to stop your victory. When you decided, I, I hear this, I accept this, may not understand it all, but I accept this and I choose to act on it, 
there was nothing he could do to stop your victory from being realized. Nothing. Every confession that you make of the Word of God is Satan's defeat. It's a step, your step, into victory. It's Satan's defeat. Every confession that you make contrary to the Word is Satan's victory over you. So what do we do? We make confessions of the Word or speak the truth in every area that we seem to be bound. Now you know as well as I do, when you made the confession of Jesus as your Lord, when you prayed the prayer of salvation, however it worked for you, whether it was in church, by yourself, talking to somebody else, whatever the case was, when you prayed the prayer, you didn't see any difference in you before you said it. If you had waited to see a change in you before you said it, you would have never said it. Yet now that we're saved, so many times Christians want to see the change, they want to see the difference, they want to see some kind of physical action or some kind of physical, uh, uh, what other word do you use besides change? They want to see a change in the circumstances or a change in their surroundings before they'll ever say it. Well, if you did that to get saved, you'd have never gotten saved. And what you did to get saved worked. So why would we think it would work in a different way now? In other words, quit waiting to see something before you start speaking the word or confessing the word. Quit waiting to see Satan's defeat before you start bringing about Satan's defeat. Wouldn't it be stupid for an army to go out and say, well, as soon as we look and see that the enemy is dead, then we'll go to battle. <laughs> It'd stop a lot of wars. Nobody would ever fight. But nothing would ever be changed. It's the same way with you and the devil. It's the same way with you in circumstances the devil tries to bring against you. If you wait to see the change before you take the step of victory, you're never going to take that step. Because you say it first, and then you have it. Then the change occurs. So what do we do? Well, Romans chapter 6 and verse 14, Paul's still talking about these things concerning righteousness and sin. He said, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Now he's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians that he knows are in the same shape as he was, that was when he was struggling with his flesh. And he said, because you've been made righteous, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Okay, Pastor Mike, that sounds great. That's one of those theoretical statements in the Bible. But that's not real in my life. Here's how you make it real. You take the same step that you took to get saved, the same principle that you took to get saved, and apply it to the area of sin. You say just what the Bible says. Because I've been made righteous, sin has no dominion over me. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, what that, what's that going to do? It's going to start renewing your mind to the truth. It's going to start changing the way you think. Well, will it do it the first time you say it? No, probably not. Well, what do you do? You keep saying it. You mean we're supposed to keep saying something? Yeah, that's the whole principle of Paul coming in out of defeat and into victory. The whole purpose of him showing us what he was like in Romans chapter 7 is to bring us to Romans chapter 12, where we present our bodies a living sacrifice by renewing our minds to the truth of the Word. How do you renew your mind to the truth of the Word? 
You say it. How do you memorize material, school material? You say it. You don't just read it. You, I mean, reading is good. It's part of it. It's part of what you do. But what do you do? You say it to yourself. If you're trying to study for work, if you're trying to study for school, whatever it is, you say it to yourself. Because the more you hear it, the more it becomes a part of you. We don't teach children when they go to school. We don't teach them to, to, to read the ABCs. We teach them to sing the ABCs. We teach them some kind of little song or teach them some kind of little verse or something that they can say to themselves because everybody knows. Everybody knows the things you say to yourself are the things that you begin to believe. They're the things that become a part of you. You can say a lie long enough to where you believe that it really happened. Well, if it works that way with a lie, how much more real would it work? Or how much more true is it to speak the word? The word never changes. Say what God's Word says. That's the whole principle behind coming out of the defeat of Romans 7 into the victory of Romans 12. Renew your mind to the Word. How? By speaking what it says. By confessing the Word. So we begin to say, because I've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, I may not feel righteous, may not look righteous, but because the Bible says that I've been made righteous, And it says, whom the Son is set free is free indeed. That means free in every area. Sin has no more dominion over me. You say you have to control you from the inside, the Spirit. You say that your Spirit dominates your flesh and your Spirit gains victory over your flesh. You say what a struggle it is. I just don't know why God's letting this happen to me. And what happens? You sink further and further and further in the hole. Folks, I can show you millions of Christians' example of complaining about the problem that doesn't help. It just gets them further into the problem. We should have plenty of evidence to know that that doesn't work. Look at the majority of the church. Yeah, we're righteous. Really? Show me something. James talked about this. He said there's so many people in the church that are claiming things, but show it to me in your life. How? By confessing the word. By confessing the word. Folks, this principle will bring you out of any and every addiction you've got. It'll change every habit that you could ever expect or ever imagine to have. What do you do? You start, while your body is still under the influence of alcohol, you start saying, because I'm righteous, made righteous by the blood of Jesus, I am no longer bound by alcohol. Now, your body's going to still scream to drink. But the more you say what God's word says... One day, it dawns on you. It comes to the reality of your, of your understanding. And it's like, wait a minute. I really can control this thing. You can break any addiction you've got. It'll work with alcohol. It'll work with smoking. It'll work with drugs. It'll work with anything and everything there is because there is nothing that's, more, that's greater than the power, the, the, the delivering power of the blood of Jesus that you've already entered into when you made Jesus the Lord of your life. Nothing. But you've got to say it. You've got to confess it. Now, whether you know it or not, that's how you pursue righteousness. That's how you pursue righteousness. You pursue righteousness by declaring that you are righteous. You pursue righteousness even by declaring what the Word of God says, declaring that you have power over sin, even when it seems like sin has its tentacles dug deep in your flesh. 
If you're waiting to feel free from, from, your, from the sin of your flesh before you declare it, it's never going to happen. But if you really want to be free, say what the Bible says. Why? Because that's a sign of spiritual maturity. Folks, by the way, you need to know this. The Bible doesn't say that righteous people never fall. It says that righteous people get up every time they do fall. How do you get up? By saying what the Word says. What is the falling he's talking about where the righteous are concerned? Every time you stumble into sin, righteous people, spiritually mature people, get up and declare what the Word says in, in spite of, in the face of, the thing they just stumbled over. Well, I may just have stumbled over sin, but bless God, the Bible says that I was made righteous by the blood of Jesus and sin has no longer dominion over me. And that's the way it is for me in Jesus' name. What is that going to do? It's going to keep you from stumbling so often. The more you say it, the less you'll stumble. The more you say it, the more real it'll become on the inside of you. Folks, I've seen people that were hooked on drugs for years, decades, that got set free by saying what the Word of God says. They came to get prayed for so that we'd cast the devil out of them. Cast this spirit of drugs out of me. But they got free by declaring what the Word says. Why? Because the Word is the power of God. If you're not saying it, you're not applying the power of God. Okay, well, what about peace and joy? The Bible says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. What about that? Pastor Mike, you just don't understand my situation. The bills are too big. My spouse doesn't like me anymore. The kids won't behave. I hurt all over, and the dog won't stop barking. I added that last one just to make it sound like a country song. Now, here's what people do. People take their circumstances and they say, okay, I understand the theory, I understand the principle you're talking about, but here's why it won't work for me. Folks, turn with me over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Now, I don't know if you realize it or not, but every one of those things I mentioned have to do with this kingdom of God. Every one of those things can, are a part of and apply to the kingdom of God. Every one of them. Material possessions for provision, healing, relationships, bills, debts, and so forth. Every one of those things, even your kids, even where your kids are concerned, every one of those things, you've got a promise as a part of being a child of God, you've got a promise for each and every one of those things. All you've got to do is find what the Word says about it and begin to confess it and then live it. And the way you live it is by confessing it. The more you say it, then the more it will start taking hold in your life. The more you confess the love of God in your life, the more you start walking in love. A lot of people want to use their confession just for things. Well, I'm, I'm confessing that I have enough money at the end of the month. Okay, that's fine. The Bible says you can have that. The Bible says that's part of the kingdom of God. Provision is part of the kingdom of God. But why not use your confession... Why not confess the word about who you are and your character and walking in love and, and things like that? Why not use the word to change you and not just change circumstances around you? You start applying the word that way and you'll solve a lot of your problems. Because you'll find out that a lot of your problems were you. And the way that you've been dealing with things. Philippians chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 6. Notice what Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost. He says, be careful for nothing. 
Another translation says, be anxious for nothing. Don't be fretful about anything. Don't worry about anything. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And, here's the result. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Folks, I want you to understand something. The Bible never says you can have peace. It says Jesus was made peace for you. It says the chastisement of your peace was upon Him. And it says this is the principle that peace will reign in your life. But whether you do it or not, it's up to you. If you want the peace of verse 7, you've got to take the action of verse 6. If you want the peace that keeps your hearts and minds in verse 7 and keeps you steady when everybody else is losing their heads, if you want the peace that keeps you steady and keeps you from being moved by your emotions and by the feelings and by the circumstances that are taking place around you, you've got to do what verse 6 says. Number one, you've got to put away worry. Now, here's what a lot of Christians do. A lot of Christians will say, Oh, Pastor Mike, you just don't understand. I'm just so overwhelmed. Well, does the Word say anything about you being overwhelmed? Oh, yeah. There's got to be a chapter and verse in there that says, Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt be overwhelmed. Well, why do we say we're overwhelmed if, if the Bible says that we've got the ability of God to handle whatever's going on? Well, I, I, I just can't. There's just too much for me. I can't. Well, the Bible says you can do all things through Christ. Well, I'm just done. I've had enough of this. I'm just done. The Bible says love never fails. Never fades out, never gives up, never comes to an end. See, so many times Christians are saying things... And they don't really mean to be contradicting the Word. They're just kind of explaining how they feel. You know? I can't help it. I just feel like this. Well, folks, what's the difference in that and feeling sick? Aren't we supposed to confess healing when we feel sick? Then shouldn't we confess God's provision even when we feel overwhelmed? Shouldn't we confess God's ability even when we feel like we've come to the end of ours? I mean, what excuse can we make for not speaking the truth? There's only one. We're baby Christians. Nobody wants to admit that. But that's what we do. That's what people do. That's what they do every day. Here's my favorite. Pastor Mike, I know the Bible says thus and such, but... I just feel, fill in the blank. Well, if you know the Bible says it, and you know the Bible commands us to speak the word or confess the word, who cares about the but how I feel? Folks, that is the key to spiritual maturity. That's the whole thing that Paul is trying to get us to go toward. That's how you pursue the righteousness in the kingdom of God. You say what God's word says. Now, there's another part to that too. We started with verse 6. Be careful for nothing. That means if you're going to walk in peace, if you're going to pursue the kingdom of God, if you're going to serve Christ and be accepted of God in these things, Romans 14, 18, you're going to have to not worry. I don't know if it's you, but worry is the hardest thing I've ever had to fight. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hardest thing. 
Nothing else is even a close second. Because worry is sneaky. I know what lack looks like. It can't sneak up on me. I know what sickness is like. It can't sneak up on me. I immediately realize when I don't feel good or when something in my body is not working right. I recognize that instantly. It can't sneak up on me. I know it's there. But worry kind of creeps up around you. And it'll even justify its being there. It'll even say, I'm not worried. I'm just concerned. (laughs) Where's the hardest thing I've ever had to fight? Because I've caught myself worrying, not knowing I was doing it. I've never caught myself accepting sickness, not knowing. I've never caught myself accepting lack or poverty or, or, or the lack of provision in any way without knowing it. But I've caught myself worrying a bunch of times, thinking, what in the world am I doing? Where did that come from? So step number one, if you're going to pursue peace, be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, that means there's got to be a substitution made. If you're not going to worry, what are we going to do? Now, folks, I realize that I'm speaking to a lot of people. If I tell them to stop worrying, they wind up with a whole lot of time on their hands. What are they going to do? If, we're, if you take worry away from me, what am I going to do? My gosh, I'm going to worry about not worrying. What am I going to do if I don't worry? That's why there's a but in Philippians 4, 6. Here's the substitute. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now, folks, whether you know that or not, that's Paul's definition of the prayer of faith in, in Mark eleven twenty four, twenty-three 23 and 24. It's the definition of the prayer of faith. In everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. In other words, find what the Bible says about what you want or what you need, ask God for it, thank Him for it, and be done with it. But now what do we do? How do we not worry after we said amen and the circumstance hasn't changed yet? Well, the Bible says if we follow this, this, uh, this pattern, it says in verse 7, it says, The peace of God shall keep your hearts and minds. Well, that's great. But how are you going to guard against worry? You've prayed, haven't seen the answer yet. How are you going to guard against worry and maintain this peace all the way through? Verse 8 is the key. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are just and true and pure and lovely and of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think. Everybody say think. Please notice the Bible tells Christians to think. It says, if there's anything that meets the criteria of true, honest, just, pure, lovely, good report, if there be any virtue, virtue has to do with character, if there's anything that inspires you in a a character sense, and if there's anything that's worthy of praise, think on these things. Now, folks, there's a lot of things that are true that aren't honest. There's a lot of things that are true that aren't of good report. There's a lot of things that are true. The circumstances that you're in may be true. You may not have. It may be true that you don't have enough money to meet your needs or to to pay the bills. But that doesn't mean it's of good report. It contradicts what the Bible says. So what are we going to think on? The only thing that I've ever found that meets the qualifications of every one of those things on the list is the Word. What is he telling us? He's saying, think on what the Bible says. 
Think on the thing that you based your prayer on in verse 6. Think on the promise that says that God will meet your needs, if that's what the, the issue is. Think on the fact that the Bible says by Jesus' stripes you were healed, if, if sickness is the issue. Think on the fact that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus if sin is trying to dominate your life. Whatever it is, think on what the Bible says about your situation. That's what causes the peace of God to reign in your life. Now, you can't do that by saying, I can't, I'm overwhelmed, or whatever. You can't do that. Because your confession is contradicting the word that you say you believe. You're going to have to be consistent. Now, the reason I put peace and joy together here, righteousness, peace, and joy, the three things that Paul said in Romans 14, 17, is, um, uh, is related to the kingdom of God, or makes up the kingdom of God is because thanksgiving is part of the prayer that you pray so that you maintain peace. What kind of joy is he talking about? What kind of thanksgiving is he talking about? He's talking about the same thing that James chapter 1 says in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The word temptations means test trials and afflictions. He's very simply saying when you're in trouble, count it joy. Well, why do we have to do that? Because it's not joy. It's not joyful. So what do we do? We count it joy. Remember, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Folks, what is joy in the Holy Ghost? Why does he say joy in the Holy Ghost? Because he's not talking about waiting for some feeling of joy. He's talking about the spiritual side of joy, which thanks God for the answer even when you're in the middle of the problem. Now here's what joy in the Holy Ghost looks like. Father, I hate this situation. You know I hate it. Jesus died so I wouldn't be in this. And whatever the reason is that I'm here, whether it's my fault or whether it's just an attack of the devil, I hate it nevertheless. But I thank you for the opportunity to put your word to work. Your word says that I was healed by the stripes of Jesus. Your word says that you supply all of my needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Your word says, Father, that whatever I have need of or desire, I can ask and believe you for. So thank you for the opportunity to prove your word in this circumstance. Thank you, Father. I thank you that your word is more true than the circumstance I'm in. I thank you that your word is more true than the bank book or the bank balance. I thank you that your word is more true than the the way my body feels. Thank you, Father, that your word is true. That's what joy in the Holy Ghost looks like. Now, did you see any expression or, 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 or any feeling or emotion attached to that? I, okay, it's me. I get that. But nevertheless, <laughs> joy in the Holy Ghost has nothing to do with emotion. That's why I called it joy in the Holy Ghost. It has nothing to do with emotion. But I'll tell you this, and this is true even for me. You start thanking God because His Word is true. And all of a sudden, it may not be the first five minutes, it may not be the first ten minutes, it may not be the first thirty minutes, but you stick with it, and all of a sudden, you'll get happy. Because the truth of what you're saying will dawn on you. The truth of what you're saying will become real on the inside of you. One of the greatest things I ever heard was a... uh, 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 Any of you ever heard of Mark Hankins? Mark's, uh, he's, uh, I've, I've noticed that he's got a TV show on now sometimes, and, and uh, I'm not sure exactly when it is. If you get a chance to see him, watch him. He, he's great. He's really great. 
He's a faith preacher. He's uh, he's funny guy. He's, he's just he's just great. We've had him. It's been a number of years ago since we've had him in the church, but we had him here preaching several times. Well, Mark's dad was named B.B. Hankins. Brother Hankins pastored a small church in uh, a small town in Texas for like 35, 40 years before he went home to be with the Lord. And uh, and and even though it was a small town, his church impacted a, a, a much bigger group of people than just the ones that lived in his town. There were more ministers that, were, that grew up in, in Brother Hankins' church and, and wound up going out and doing great things for God and stuff. I mean, he was just, he was really something. He was a, a true man of God. And somebody asked him one time, how did you do all the work of the ministry that you've done? There were buildings that they built. And, and I, we're, you know, he, uh, he went home to be with the Lord probably 10 years ago, something like that. So 30 and 40 years before that, I mean, it wasn't like people were giving or had even been taught to give, knew to give or anything like that. And they just did some tremendous things, built buildings and, and, uh, and, and all the kinds of stuff that they did. And so people asked him, a group of ministers asked him, how did you get the finances to do all the things that you did? And he just very simply answered. He, he just, you know, without cracking a smile, didn't have to think it out or anything. He just looked at him. He said, I danced the money in. Well, I'm thinking, well, of course. <laughs> Dumb question. No, everybody's saying, you did what? What? What'd you say? It sounded like you said you danced the money in. He said, that's exactly what I did. He said, I'd get alone in my office or sometimes even go out behind the barn. He said, I'd just dance the money in. Uh, have you got a scripture for that? <laughs> Not really, except count it all joy. Now, folks, here's what he's saying. And he went on to elaborate. He explained. He, he could see. I mean, there was a group of people looking at him like he had just, you know, come from another planet. I mean, it just, everybody said, could you tell us a little bit more about that? And so he'd say, he'd say, I'd be in situations where it would look like there would be absolutely no way. The money wasn't there. He said, I'd just get off by myself somewhere. Just get off by myself and just put the Bible out in front of me there where it says God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. He said, I'd just start dancing. He said, I'd just start dancing. And somebody asked him, said, well, what made you dance? Did you feel like dancing? He said, of course not. If you feel like dancing, it doesn't count. <laughs> See, folks, that's what joy in the Holy Ghost is about. It's confessing the word. It's taking a position of, I believe that this is true, and exhibiting from your heart, not from your flesh, but from your heart, that belief in some kind of show of appreciation. So he said, I'd just dance the money in. He said, I'd just get out there. He said, by myself. Nobody ever saw me. Nobody ever knew. He said, I'd just get out by myself and I'd just dance the money in. I wonder if that'd work in your house. Well, why would it work for church and it wouldn't work for you? It's all the same thing. Now, folks, please don't think that we're getting fanatical about anything. Because Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to. Paul said the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So lest anyone think that we're being fanatical, 
Remember that Paul, the one that said, don't be anxious or, or fretful about anything, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, there's the thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. He's writing to the group of people in whose town he was in jail, and at midnight, after they had been beaten, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. What do you think they were praising God for? Oh, thank you, Lord, that we're beaten. Always wanted to get hit. <laughs> what would you be praising God for? What would you be praying about if you were in prison unjustly? Now you're going to have some spiritual nuts and say, Oh, well, we were just praising God that we were in His perfect will. <laughs> Give me a break. Go in prison and tell me that. Come on. Paul's praying the same thing you and I would have prayed. Lord... We came here because you told us to come here. You gave us a vision to come here. We came here, got somebody set free, and we got beaten for it. Get us out of here. Thank you for getting us out of here. I didn't come to this town to go to jail. May have used different words than that, but I'll guarantee you it was something close. At midnight, they sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly... There was an earthquake, and every prison door opened, and every person's bands fell off their, their hands, stocks fell off their feet, their necks. Everybody is automatically, totally set free. Have you ever known of an earthquake to just affect prison doors and chains? It doesn't say, and suddenly there was an earthquake, and walls fell down on all the bad people, and Paul and Silas were let loose. Now, if it said that, then we could think, wow, that was an earthquake. But when it says it the way that it does, with the results that it says, that seems to be a little bit supernatural, don't you think? And what brought it about? They sang praises unto God and prisoners heard it. They prayed and sang praises. That's what Brother Hankins was talking about. He said, I just danced the money in. Folks, you would not believe how many times I get in my office and dance. That's why I don't do it here. I do it in my office. It wouldn't do me any good to do it here for you to see. But it does me a world of good to do it in my office where God sees. You know why our TV show is not in debt? Because I dance in my office. <laughs> Listen, I'm not telling you to do something I don't do. I'm telling you here's what works. And whether you know it or not, it's the pursuit of of the kingdom of God. It's the pursuit of righteousness. It's the pursuit of peace. It's the pursuit of joy in the Holy Ghost. You think that doesn't make God happy? You think that doesn't change things? It changes everything. It changes everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Oh, Father, this is not a book of fairy tales like some people think. It may be dead to them because they don't act on it but it's a living word to us because we will. Thank you, Father, that we are made righteous by the blood of Jesus. We're not in the process of being made righteous. We have been made righteous according to your word. Therefore, we declare that sin no longer has dominion over us. Now, folks, there are people here in this room, they may be bound with habits, addictions, things that they keep stumbling over time after time after time, things that they genuinely hate from the inside, from their spirits, but they can't seem to get victory over. 
Thank you, Father, for revealing to them, not through my words, but you showing them by the Holy Ghost. Thank you that the key to that victory is for them to speak and confess your word. To confess that they're free. Confess that they have dominion over sin rather than the other way around. Father, thank you that there is no problem that we face that is too big for you. There is no problem that we will ever face here on the earth that your word hasn't already provided for. That the work of Jesus on the cross has not already provided the answer for us. Therefore, Father, we can come to you with simple faith, childlike faith, expecting you to honor your word, expecting you to fulfill your promise so that we can walk in victory. Therefore, we will live in peace. We won't worry about what the devil is doing. We won't worry about what's coming next. We won't worry about the future, even if the future is tomorrow. But instead, we'll maintain the peace of God. And because you're on our side, we'll count it joy. Because you're on our side, because the answer is already provided through the work of Jesus, we'll simply count it joy. Father, help us to be a people, doers of the word, that we can dance the answers into, whether they're financial, whether they're physical, whatever it is that's going on in our lives, Father. Show us what joy and pleasure this brings to you when we accept your word as truth. Thank you, Father. Thank you for victory. Thank you that our confession is Satan's defeat. Our confession is our victory. <laughs> Even as John said, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospers. Father, help people to see that this is the prosperous soul. This is the soul that is prospering, being renewed in the truth of the word, acting on what the Bible says to do that brings the answer every time. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, the confession of our faith. The confession of your word brings victory in every circumstance, every situation. Oh, thank you, Father, you never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you, Father, that you'll make good your promise for each and every one of us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 Well, let's all stand together. Thank you so much for caring enough about the things of God to be doers of the Word. Do you know what a minority you are in, in the body of Christ? Do you know how many, people, how many people in the body of Christ would rather just hear, well, we don't have an explanation for why things are so bad. But God's got a purpose. Yeah, He's got a purpose for you to walk in victory. And we do that by putting the Word to work. Thank you for caring enough about the Word. You're an awesome group of people. I mean that from my heart. God's given me the best people in the world to pastor. Thank you for being those people. Thank you for caring enough about the things of God. I want you to know that I pray for you daily. I want you to know that I believe with you. I want you to know that I expect every one of you to walk in victory in every area of your life because that's what you know belongs to you. Thanks for being a part of us. We love you. You're dismissed. <laughs>